Welcome back to the Medical Illustration Podcast. This is your host, Paul Kelly. My guest today is Chen Yin Chen, an award-winning medical illustrator and designer, and the founder of QC Visuals, a biomedical illustration studio established in 2013. Chen Yin graduated from the Biomedical Communications Program at the University of Toronto-Mississauga in 2015. She has been described as lightning fast and has completed over 250 projects for a number of clients in healthcare and education. Please enjoy this interview with Chin Yan Chen. Have you ever surfed over to the medical illustration subreddit? There's a medical illustration subreddit? I didn't know we had that. Oh, totally. I'm a moderator on it. Oh, okay. I'm going to have to check that out then. Yeah, I've been trying to post some content on there and answer lots of questions folks have. And that's a great place to start, actually, because I'd love to hear your thoughts for those who may be listening and are interested in getting involved in the field, I see a lot of questions on Reddit about people asking about, you know, how to apply and how to best prepare. So I'd, I'd love to ask you, what recommendations would you have for folks who are interested in getting into medical illustration? How could they best prepare? Um, yeah, are you, uh, I guess, asking about preparation to get into a program or preparation in general, because I've had literally 13-year-olds reach out to me and asking me how to prepare, and my advice would be finish high school first. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, though. Wow. So keen. I've had, I've had parents reach out on behalf of their kids, and, and my advice is let, let your kid be a kid and let them chill. Let's not plan out their grad school career trajectory when they're still like figuring out how to do calculus. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess... If you, if you definitely know you want to at least apply for a program, um, and at least uh, for Canada, I would say the best preparation would be to really hone up on your art skills, um, at least for BMC, uh, Biomedical, Biomedical Communications in Toronto. Um, it's a very technology-heavy program in my experience compared to the other ones in the States, and they will teach you how to use the technology, like how to use Photoshop, how to use Illustrator. Mm-hmm. Um, how to use Maya, but what they won't teach you is how to draw um, and really knowing how to draw realistically and having basic fundamental art theories like form, lighting, composition, design. Um, it's, gonna, it's just going to help you for every aspect of your kind of time there. Um, and, and I think that because a lot of the folks that go to BMC come from a science background, that's generally where I find they're the weakest. Um, and you know, you don't have to go and take like a whole fine arts degree, but just hone up on your basic draftsmanship so that you can at least do as boring as it sounds, you know, still life, uh, will help you tremendously and Mm -hmm. it'll really show through in your portfolio because I see a lot of people who ask me to review their portfolio and their kind of, you know, rendering and their colors are beautiful, but then what they're like, for example, if they're. Uh, submitting a still life you know the colors are beautiful the digital techniques are beautiful but then just the basic shape of the apple is wrong and then that just kind of undermines the whole piece Mm. Um, so I definitely say brush up on your art skills Um, and then conversely if you come in from a fine arts background which I have also seen um, then you really want to brush up on your science skills because they also will not teach you how to do you know basic science research and science literacy so if you're not comfortable kind of quickly glancing through, you know, journal articles to get the gist of what they're talking about or scan for keywords or even just kind of knowing where to look for scientific information, um, definitely 
brush up on that as well because uh, because uh, as science communicators, we're going to be learning a lot of innovative science techniques that ne uh, won't necessarily be in textbooks and won't necessarily be explained in the most easily digestible way. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, <laughs> I yeah, I think two things. I, I I would totally agree. That's that sounds fantastic. I I totally agree with everything you just said. I think that might even come as a little bit of a surprise to some folks to to hear that you know a a program that's all about creating scientific visuals and medical art isn't going to teach you art. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, right? Yeah, we we only have 2 years and there's so much innovation and so much kind of things we have to learn that, you know, I think they just kind of expect that you have these skills going into it. Mhm. Mm yeah. Yeah, definitely. How would you describe the core ideas or principles that they do teach at BMC? I would say, I think the core fundamental of the program is basically learning how to learn. Um, they're not going to kind of handhold you and kind of teach you how to do every program and how to tackle every project, but they will teach you critical thinking skills and, um, you know, how to look up tutorials, how to self-learn how to manage your time, um, how to best use the resources that are given to you. Um, and I think, I think that's true for most uh, kind of graduate programs is that they really teach you how to learn and how to tackle problems so that you're able to facilitate your own learning even beyond the program because, you know, in a two-year program, they, they won't teach you everything and in your career as well. You know, your boss is not going <laughs> to sit down and teach you how to do every aspect of a job. So I think mm -hmm. the most valuable skill out of it is just, learning how to facilitate your own learning. Mm. Excellent. I, I want to uh, move back just a little bit and ask you a little bit about your background before you uh, got into the, the program. Uh, were you artistic when you were younger? Uh, yes, I was. So I was, um, I was the, the stereotypical kind of Asian kid that was always drawing <laughs> a lot of anime, you know, early on. Okay, um, okay. And, what were some uh, favorites? I, <laughs> Sailor Moon. I, as a girl, I definitely desperately wanted to have superpowers and be able <laughs> to change outfits by spinning in a circle. Um, and, and so I think I, you know, as cringy as it sounds, I learned how to draw by drawing anime. Um, Nothing wrong with that. And then, <laughs> and then conversely, you know, my stereotypical Asian mom would, you know, say, you can't make it as an artist. Like, you're going to be poor and starving on the streets, you know, mm -hmm. doing porches for $10. And why don't you go learn to be a doctor or a lawyer? Or, um, but, uh, yes, long story short, I was artistic and I really, really enjoyed art, um, even if uh, my mom didn't necessarily support that. <laughs> so... In addition to the anime, what were some of the uh, the other early inspirations in when you were younger that you know really spoke to you? Um, I really liked Van Gogh or Van Gogh. Mm, okay, I'm not pronouncing it correctly whatsoever. <laughs> um, I don't. I just I love that what he was drawing wasn't necessarily the most realistic, but his use of color and his expression it was just so vivid and so like like artistic. Like it just um, I, don't, I, I really liked it and I can't quite explain why. Um, and then also I just really liked anything from the Renaissance. Uh, mm. Like I think that was the peak of like oil painting and just romantic, beautiful paintings. Like I, I don't think we're ever going to top that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think we need to because that kind of period of art has already been done. 
um, but just the way they use color and the way they're able to, you know, make something 2D come to life is just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, and I think there's a lot of kind of like hyper realistic art now, but they just don't have the kind of soul that I find Renaissance paintings had. Um, Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think those more kind of less anime <laughs> inspirations yeah. would be that go into Well, it, you know, it makes me wonder because I I think you're totally right. It is sort of an era we can't ever really return to, and one of the aspects of it, of of course, is that you know they didn't have TV or internet or any of these distractions that we have today, <laughs> right? And it, yeah, it makes me wonder, you know, like fifty or a hundred years from now what they're going to look back on in our era and be like, Oh, can't do that anymore. You know, <laughs> they're probably going to be like people, people would listen to podcasts that were 30 minutes long. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't just digitally download it to your brain in 30 milliseconds. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> so who were uh, some of the folks in your life that, you know, really helped you out along the way? I think that's, uh, helpful for people to kind of hear about those stories and and know about facilitators. So who who were some of the facilitators to your success? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, for me, because I didn't get the kind of parental support that I needed to kind of pursue my career. Um, so I went to an arts high school. So what that means is um, you had to kind of do a portfolio to get in and the school, uh, Canterbury High School in Ottawa, uh, they had different streams. So there was like a music stream, uh, a creative writing stream, a drama stream. So I was in a visual arts stream. Um, and one of the art teachers there, his name is Tim Deathclaw. Um, he. Sorry, what was his name again? Uh, Tim Deathclaw. Okay. Um, yeah, he, he knew that I really wanted to go into art. And um, most of my graduating class, you know, went to Sheridan or they went to OCAD. Um, or Emily Carr, like they all kind of chose uh, art schools. And my mom was very adamant that I pursue science. Uh, so I applied for life science at Queen's University. And I just basically thought that high school was going to be the only time I was able to kind of do art. Um, and he handed me this pamphlet uh, on graduation day. And it was this like folded up pamphlet of BMC actually about oh, the cool. program. And he was like, just keep this in the back of your pocket. And at the time I looked at it, I looked at the website and I saw this like these beautiful 3D renderings of science. And I was like, nope, I definitely will not be able to get in. That is way too intimidating. Um, yeah, I was super intimidated as well. Yeah. When I, when I first started looking into it, I was like, oh man, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. <laughs> yeah. They, and they tend to kind of highlight the best pieces on their website too, which doesn't help because then you don't realize that, you know, you can have a range of, of talent going in. Um, but I, I just, you know, kept in the back of my mind. Um, and then I went to Queens and I had um, orientation week. And at Queens, they kind of segment you based on what, uh, what major you were into. So everybody I was with were in life science. Um, and we had this kind of like prop talk session. And one of the professors, his name is um, Leslie McKenzie, and he taught anatomy at Queens. And he started off with, you know, uh, who here wants to be a doctor? And everybody raised their hand and he did the whole spiel, you know, look to your left, look to your right, only one of you would get in. Um, and then he looked at me and he was like, you didn't raise your hand. What, like, what do you, why are you here? And I was like, I wanted to be an artist, but my mom wouldn't let me. So here I am. <laughs> um, and and he, he said that he actually um, 
hired uh, students to do uh, anatomy illustrations for his textbook uh, okay. at Queens. And he said to talk to him after. You know, I talked to him after, and he said he actually got a lot of uh, past prior students into the BMC program. Um, he worked with um, Jeffrey Chung, I believe. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so we started talking and he gave me some kind of really easy pieces to start off with. And then uh, I just kind of started drawing for him for my entire time at Queens, as well as his um, colleague, uh, Ronnie Steele. Um, and with that, I was able to kind of develop experience and help with my portfolio. Um, so that definitely really helped, uh, knowing that at least there were, you know, someone that did support the fact that I could do science and art at the same time. Um, and then very lastly, so when I applied to BMC and I got in, um, I, I was that, you know, being Asian, I was like, I'm going to be keen and I'm going to try to find work before I even enter the program. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. Uh, because uh, on your site, I think you said uh, you started working in 2013, but you graduated in 2015. Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, what so I did, what I did, um, I, I did I, a bunch I did of old emails to all the So I got to BMC and just wondered if we had, you know, free internships. Nice. Good move. And one of and the one people we talked to was uh, Diana Kuski. She, she had that um, um, Christy Biomedia. Okay. And, and it was just a really small, small world because, because she also went to Canterbury, Canterbury and, and had visited him uh, recently because uh, she, she at that time had published, published a, um, a book a that she was reading. And so I found out and I was like, hey, Diana, I was in Canterbury and Tim recommended that I look at this program because I wasn't able to do art at high school. And she, um, uh, she took a leap of faith and accepted me <laughs> with who had like, you know, no medical illustration kind of proper skills at that time to be an intern um, and just really mentored me for the summer before BMC um, and taught me a lot about freelancing and uh, just, you know, really kind of opened up and, you know, taught me about time management and, you know, as like early quoting and clients and um I think I don't, I know, I definitely don't think where I'd be where I am without her help. So yeah. yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. The, the power of a mentor, right. Is just, it's, it's so critical. Yeah, definitely. Especially when, you know, I didn't have any type of mentorship growing up, having kind of professional mentors definitely really helped me a lot. Right on. That's awesome. And are you, are you still in touch? Uh, I definitely in touch with Diana. I work with her a oh, lot okay. actually. Oh, that's great. Um, that's great. Yeah, not so much with uh, Tim or the anatomy profs. I mean, I'm sure they've seen hundreds and hundreds of students go through. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I've actually been meaning to uh, reach out to my anatomy professor from undergrad because she was so amazing, uh, Dr. Bariather at UIC. And I would do these little doodles and sketches in my, uh, my notebook when we had a anatomy class. And we actually did uh, some cadaver dissection. And that's how I would study is I would just make drawings to study. And she actually kind of told me like, Oh, you should, you know, you should do this, uh, you know, BVIS program at UIC. And, uh, I didn't end up going to UIC for BVIS, but, uh, you know, she kind of helped plant that seed, you know, in my mind that, you know, this was something to, to look into. That's so cool that, uh, you know, you've, you've got these folks who have, uh, you know, helped you out and that you've, uh, been able to, you know, have this great relationship with Diana. Yeah. Her work is, is stellar. Yeah, and she's also incredibly fast and very um, 
uh, innovative as well. And it's just, it's kind of crazy how the suggestion of one person can change your life trajectory. It makes me wonder, what have I said to people that have changed their lives and is it for the better? <laughs> oh, I know, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. don't torture yourself uh, too much, you know, thinking about that because, yeah, that's that's a rabbit hole <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but, uh, you know, here's now here's a question that sort of relates to, you know, helping out some folks who are interested in getting into the field because I really want to try to appeal to that audience a bit. Thinking back... Uh, and, you know, kind of also going off of what we were just saying there, um, you know, what's something that you maybe not necessarily regret, but something that you wish you had kind of like done differently or maybe something you'd wish you'd spent more time on? Um, yeah, I think I definitely will recommend and I, and I say this to everybody that reaches out for portfolio advice or <laughs> high schoolers who want to plan their entire life is to really just take a step back, you know, uh, take a breath and just do you know do things one step at a time and really just try different things um if you're you know early and deciding if you want to be a medical illustrator you know try out different um try out different softwares or look up different parts of the um career like whether if you want to focus on anatomy or molecular or genetics and just really kind of you know dabble your hand a bit of everything without that kind of like pressure of needing to be good at it or perfect it on your first go um, and, and really just, you know, there's like, there's no wrong decisions and everybody goes at their own speed. Um, and it's sometimes a lot better to just take some time to, to really figure out if this is what you really want to do. And if it's the right choice for you, then it's to rush into something. For me, I definitely wish I, you know, taken a gap year or um, taking more time to learn more uh, skills or software before I kind of just decided that I wasn't good at it and I wasn't going to pursue it. And along with that line, also just kind of developing interpersonal skills as well. Growing up in an Asian family, it was all, you know, grades and, you know, technical skills and memorization. And what I, you know, had to learn the hard way is at the end of the day, whether you're in school or in the professional world, interpersonal skills are so important. Uh, you know, being able to form good relationships and communicate properly and, you know, give feedback. Like all of that is going to help you and it's better to kind of take time to maybe, you know, don't study for 24 hours and actually, you know, form some friendships so you can kind of develop those skills. Um, but yeah, I, can, I guess like long story short, you know, take your time. Uh, don't put so much pressure on yourself and, you know, form those relationships that are just going to help you uh, for the rest of your life. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned a, a gap year. I actually took, I think it was two years, maybe two and a half years after graduating high school because I didn't want to go to school right away. I, you know, I just wanted to start making money. So I just immediately started working full time. And I'm so glad that I did because when I was ready to go to school, I was really ready, you know, and I think I would have really just wasted my time if I had gone straight into university out of high school. Yeah, I definitely did not get the most out of my undergrad that I should have because I, I went into it thinking that like high schools, grades were everything, but really the people that succeeded were the people that took time to, you know, go to Frosh Week and, um, and, you know, make friends with their roommates and not hole up in your dorm studying 24-7. So I definitely wish I took a gap year as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also wonder sometimes about, you know, after graduating from, uh, from BMC, from the grad program, you know, maybe if I had, you know, should have taken a little bit of a break, but I, w I think I was happy to jump right in and, and start working. I think most people do kind of 
want to just jump right in and, and get in there. I think part of why everybody wants to get a job after BMC is because tuition is expensive and student loans mm. are hanging over your head. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just wish education was cheaper and then, and then maybe people would be able to afford taking a break. Yeah. I, that's, an, that's another thing that comes up a lot is, you know, people want to know, essentially, am I going to get a return on my investment? You know, if I go to grad school, I think that's a question a lot of people want to know because there has been a trend in other creative fields such as graphic design, even 3D animation and visual effects where folks have found that they didn't need to go to school to get into those industries. They, you know, just took some classes online or they learned just from watching YouTube tutorials, how to use this software. And they're like, oh, I just built a portfolio and got hired at a studio. I don't know if that necessarily would work in our field, though. What do you What do you think about that? Uh, that's a great question. And I think unlike other uh, types of uh, kind of illustration and visual creative uh, jobs, medical illustration is unique in that you definitely do get a return on your investment. Um, part of why I was so comfortable doing medical illustration is because it definitely, in my opinion, pays the best out of all the kind of traditional illustration careers because we're so specialized and there's so few of us. And I think you definitely need that degree to really have credibility uh, to get hired, at least in Canada, in my experience. I think I would say almost every company looks for that degree. Otherwise, you know, there's a doubt that do you know enough about pathology? Do you know enough about, you know, neuroscience? And then like, have you had training in how to kind of focus on accuracy? Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to what you had been saying earlier about how the grad programs really do help to teach you how to learn, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, yeah, basically, I think for medical illustration, you definitely get a return on your investment. Um, and you definitely need a degree, I think, to break into the field. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is something that's maybe something missing from a lot of the up-and-coming artists that they could really benefit uh, addressing, either those who are applying or those who are just starting out? I think for those applying, I think just the core, you know, draftsmanship skills and science literacy that I talked about earlier. But for the people that are kind of graduating, what I noticed from BMC, and, I, and I, it might have changed in recent years, but at least when I was there, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on good design. And again, we only have two years, so there's only so much they can, they can teach you before your brain kind of explodes. But I think they definitely, at least in my year, they didn't teach the core fundamentals of good graphic design. So typography, kind of contrast, um, you know, how to like label things so that your leader lines don't come out like spider legs. Um, I think <laughs> just <laughs> some basic benefits and some very, very basic graphic design principles because I've seen so many beautiful beautifully rendered anatomy pieces where it's this gorgeous, you know, uh, organ. And then it, get, it gets ruined by fonts that are really kind of unappealing and really big. And then their leader lines come out at all different angles. And it just kind of, um, you know, it's unfortunate because then you can't focus on the beautiful art because you're so distracted by the design of it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there was this one course where you had to kind of put together a mock textbook chapter and again, like beautiful visuals, but then the, the design of that textbook chapter was really funky and then you can't focus on it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think just some really basic graphic design principles would help a lot. 
Um, and then I think the other thing that would really help uh, recent grads transition to working in the professional world is learning, you know, really good shortcuts. And mm. and I know tracing is a big no-no for <laughs> artists, but I think everybody I know that is working professionally does tracing in some degree just because it's faster. So you find a really good accurate reference, you kind of trace the parts that haven't done before, and then you put your own artistic flair on it. There's nothing wrong with that. Same with kind of, I see so many people try to like draw people and draw hands from scratch and it takes them, you know, like two hours, whereas just find a really good stock image, trace it, and then, you know, render it from there. Um, so I think just having some practical shortcuts would help a lot too. Oh, yeah. Especially when it comes to people, right? I think yes. doing a portrait, it's so satisfying when you get a good one where you kind of did it from scratch, you know, you drew out your proportions, but it can be a lot of hit and miss for a long time before you really master, you know, the, the facial anatomy. I mean, even people who are quite good as artists, it, they still can struggle sometimes with a face. So I, 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 Oh yeah, totally. I, I can't do faces. They all end up looking, they all fall into the uncanny valley territory. Yeah. So I, just, I find the, the expression I'm looking for and then I trace yeah. it and then I'm good to go. Yeah. No, same here. I you almost always go with the photo tracing kind of base and there's still a lot of artistic decision making that has to go in to taking a, like a traced photo into a more illustrative look. Yeah, exactly. And, and I wish that kind of schools would kind of tell them that time is money and you, at the end of the day, have to work smart, not necessarily, you know, stay up all night rendering the perfect portrait because we're not in fine arts. Like we're not getting graded on our ability to, you know, render a beautiful portrait from scratch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And I think that's a, a really important distinction to make as well that because I think it is enjoyable at a, at a certain level for a lot of creative folks just to be rendering, right? Just to be in there like shading and adding detail. It's fun, right? And it's you can kind of get lost in there. But like you say, you have to remember, is this leisure time or is this business time? Yes. And because I'm freelancing, at the end of the day, I always ask myself, am I getting paid for this? If I'm not, mm -hmm. then I've got to move on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very good point. Now, I want, I want to ask you as well, because this is something I kind of have fallen into recently that I'm trying to correct, which is finding that balance between looking up inspiration and learning new things, but also remembering to apply that and not get too wrapped up in just watching tutorial after tutorial and then never producing anything, you know? Have you ever experienced anything like that? Or like, what's your intake level for like learning new stuff and watching tutorials and stuff? Oh, good question. Um, I think I'm probably the anomaly uh, here because <laughs> I'm, I'm really bad at pre-learning things. I think I just have a short attention span. Um, I don't think I've ever sat through a full tutorial, like 30 seconds in, and I, I'm just like, tell me what to do, <laughs> enough <laughs> with the preamble. Um, and then I try to skip through it, and of course I'm lost because I, I missed the preamble that tells you, you know, what the UI interface is, and I can't find the button for the life of me. Um, mm -hmm. But for me, I think I, I learn best when I'm put under pressure, and I, and I learn best when there's a purpose to the learning. So for me, my intake comes when I take a project that I don't necessarily know how to do, but I, you know, say, yes, of course I can do it. And then I 
trial and fire, learn it as I'm working on the project. And then I Google like crazy and then I have like 50 tabs open and then I try to assimilate that in my head and, and get the project done. Um, I, I all don't the tabs, <laughs> all the tabs. <laughs> I've always got yeah. way too many tabs open. <laughs> and then my computer crashes and I wonder why. <laughs> um, I don't necessarily recommend my method of learning because it is stressful and it is a little chaotic. But if you're impatient like me and you just don't have the patience to kind of watch tutorials in your free time, um, it, you can try it out. But yeah, for me, my intake is very ad hoc and very kind of as I need it. I think that's probably the better way to go, to be honest, <laughs> is just grab what you need. Just just take what you need. You needed just that one little tip or just that what, what's the what's that tool? Okay, got it. Back to work, right? I don't know. I feel guilty because I think there's I, – I always feel like I'm not being artistic enough by not, <laughs> you know, learning all of these cool skills in my free time. But, you know, for me, I just – I kind of want to nap in my free time and I – want to play candy crush and i want to just <laughs> be a potato <laughs> well there's nothing wrong with that you know i mean your your time is yours to use as you uh choose right i mean it should be but yeah i guess there's no wrong way to learning so if you want to give my method a try and it works for you let me know so i don't feel so alone <laughs> <laughs> right on well one of the things that always tempts me is all the f you know flashy new software pieces and also, the idea of maybe having a more efficient or a more productive workflow if I figure out the right tools. So what, what are your favorite software tools to work in and what are some that maybe uh, you're still working on or like what, what's your bread and butter software? Uh, bread and butter for me is definitely Illustrator and Photoshop. I don't do 3D work. I, uh, I contract that out. Mm -hmm. um, so for me... My favorite is definitely Illustrator, which is funny because I went into BMC knowing Photoshop and not Illustrator. Mm. And and I remember taking that course I was talking about where you had to do this like mock layout for a textbook. And uh, one of the professors, Dave Mazursky, was saying that you want to do your labeling in Illustrator, not Photoshop, because it's not built for that. And I was so resistant. I was like, no, I know how to use Photoshop. I'm going to type all my text in it, and I'm going to, you know, do my design layout in it. And and then I moved to Illustrator, and I was like, oh, my God, this is so much better. Um, so yeah, I, vector, I do <laughs> those ve yeah. The vector text is just, it's way better <laughs> it's so it's so different and with illustrator you don't have to worry about your layers because everything on the canvas is selectable whereas once you get to a certain complexity in photoshop you're like which, which layer did i put this in did i name it like right um, yeah. or you merged it you know yeah yep or, or you want to make it bigger but then you realize that you made that a certain pixel and then it gets blurry but in illustrator you have the full freedom to edit um, so I actually do all of my base art in Illustrator. So even if I'm working on, say, um, uh, say like muscles of the forearm, I do every muscle shape in Illustrator so I can get those smooth kind of curves. And mm -hmm. then I import that into Photoshop and render on top of it um, without having to worry about going outside of the lines or things like that. So definitely mm -hmm. Illustrator for me. Right on. Yeah. The, oh, that's another key uh, technique and uh, trick I think we can share is that learning how to draw those Bezier curves or paths in Illustrator and Photoshop, that I think was one of the most profound things I learned uh, at BMC when uh, Michael Corrin was teaching us like, man, if you can learn how to draw good Bezier curves and smooth lines, you don't have to freak out that you're not going to be able to draw like a nice smooth line 
you know, just, you know, just draw the path. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to give another uh, tip because mm-hmm. they don't teach this in BMC. You don't have to only use the pen tool in Illustrator. There's a tool called the pencil tool where mm. you just draw like you're regularly drawing so you don't have to worry about anchor points and things. And then there's a smooth tool where you just go over that line and it smooths everything out. And it's, I would say, you know, 500 times faster than using the pen tool. Wow. So definitely is- check it out because I'm very bitter that they did not teach you that at BMC. <laughs> That is a good tip. Yeah, I've actually I've used that pencil tool once or twice, but I didn't know about the smoothing tool. That's that's really slick. Wow. Yeah, and you can you, the the pencil tool also has a default smoothing section, so you can also adjust within how many pixels you wanted to kind of naturally curve out. I have never used the pen tool after discovering the pencil tool unless I'm doing very uh, inorganic kind of things where I need to have perfect kind of straight lines and corners. Mm-hmm. But uh, because a lot of our work is organic, pencil tool all the way. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Wow. So talking about some of the uh, perceptions people have of like, you know, the work that we do, they don't always know what techniques we're using or what, you know, software we might be using. What would you say are some of the most frequently misunderstood aspects of our work? Hmm, Good question. Um, I think, so this is not unique to medical illustration, but um, I think with all creative uh, services, at least for clients, there's a misunderstanding that we can just produce something really quickly. Um, and so therefore, we don't need to get paid for it. You know, I can't tell you the number of times clients say, can you just produce an animation by tomorrow? And how's 30 bucks? <laughs> and, and then that just makes me so angry because one, you know, you can't produce art, you know, out of your head like that. Like if you, if you look at pixel uh, movies and they say, you know, this one like shot took 100 hours to render like that's that's also true for medical illustration um and the other part is you know just because if we are fat headed it doesn't mean we get to get paid less because you're not paying us for our time you're paying us for our expertise and the amount of time and training and experience that went into being able to produce something quickly Um, absolutely Absolutely. yeah and then the other part (laughs) sorry to interrupt you but uh yeah and the, the other part is um for medical illustration, I think people don't understand the amount of scientific research that goes into our work. Um, we're scrutinized on, you know, every kind of dot we put into an illustration. Does that is, the, is that a protein? Is that an enzyme? Um, is that vessel placed correctly? Is the branching angle right? Um, this, you know, one tiny line is that an extra nerve? Like that doesn't exist in the body. So I think uh, people don't understand that accuracy is at the core of our skills. Um, so unlike kind of regular artists, there's so much scientific research that goes into it. When I start a project, the first thing I do isn't, you know, sketching things. It's opening up 50 tabs to research the science and find good reference images. Oh yeah, absolutely. Interesting. You bring up the repetitive requests we always get for either free work or cheap work. And, you know, this is something I've always wrestled with. Especially it it takes on another flavor for me because at my job, we have an open access website where we post all our content, right? So that adds another layer of potential confusion when people see all this work we're putting out for free and they may not understand that somebody did pay for it, (laughs) you know, (laughs) down the line. And I think that's something that is, is hard to communicate with clients. But one of the ways I've formulated this 
in my mind, and I, I'm curious to see if you agree with this, is the critical difference I see is whether I, as the artist or as the creative, conjured up this idea and put it out there because I just wanted to share something that I worked on for myself versus when someone is requesting, I use my skills to make something for them. I think that is the big difference between whether the content should be shared freely or if I'm going to charge someone. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Kind of. Lost me a little bit there. So I guess the, the difference would be, am I the artist driving this creation or am I the artist creating something under someone else's guidance to their specifications? Which, which also means there will be inevitably revisions and changes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, th- and that's, that's one thing I would definitely share to like younger uh, illustrators, whether they're, you know, still a student or wanting to get into the field or, or get started in their career is that when they're approached by people who, you know, want free or cheap work that, you know, I think if, they, if they're asking you to make something that you otherwise wouldn't have even thought of, then as soon as you create something that was at somebody else's behest, then you should be charging them. Yes, and and even if um, even if it was something you were you would have created for yourself anyway, but because they're asking for it, they're going to be asking for the rights to use it. They're going to be asking for a part of that artwork, and they should be paying for that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious too what you think about you know sharing artwork online and especially on it, it can be really tricky because on you know Instagram or I don't know if you've ever uh, gone through ArtStation there's so much artwork that's just pushed out there on the internet and sometimes people you know just don't know that you know there there might be a purpose for it that it might be promotional or it might be to teach something or it might be a form of advertising but what do you think less experienced illustrators should know about sharing their work online? Oh, that's a great question. Um, it's funny because I've also been taught by professors where the internet wasn't a thing and they still had to carry printed portfolios around to share their work. Like times have changed so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as with anything on the internet, once it's out there, it's out there forever. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, and um, and also just protect yourself. So, I mean, there's like, if someone can, wants to steal your artwork, they will find a way to do it, but there are measures you can take to make it harder because I would say most people are lazy. If the type of person that's going to steal your artwork, they're probably, you know, on the lazier side. Um, so if you just make it harder, that deters a lot of people. It's kind of like, um, if you have an alarm system, you know, and you just put the sticker out there, most kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> robbers will kind of, try to find a house that doesn't have it just for the amount of effort it takes. Mm. Uh, so, you know, watermark everything. Um, and I've, I've struggled with this because sometimes watermarks kind of uh, interfere with your, the ability to appreciate the artwork because it's so prominent. Mm. Um, but then if you place it in the, you know, in the corner, then people can crop it out. Um, so I would experiment with different types of watermarks that work best for you and your work. Um, whether that's kind of like a nice signature that's actually kind of in the middle of the art piece 
um, or it's that kind of like the traditional one you see that's um, kind of like a transparent kind of pattern over the artwork. Um, but definitely, uh, you know, sign your work, watermark it in some way, shape or form um, in, a, in a place that where they can't just easily crop it out. And then this is the biggest one. Don't post, you know, insanely high resolution images of your work online. Yeah. Um, yeah. It does not need to be, you know, like 4,000 pixels by 8,000 pixels. Like post just the high res enough version that people can legibly see it. And, and that's it. Um, and then if they want, you know, high res versions, they should either be paying for that or you have to send it to them privately if yeah, no, that, that, you know what, that's a great point. And another thing where I think there's a little bit of an area of confusion with folks because you do see these massive, like, 4K still frames of, like, a dynamic simulation, you know, render out of Houdini or something. And what I think, you know, folks need to appreciate with those is, like, that image, that was sort of more of an experiment that that artist did and wanted to put out there to say, Hey, look at what I was playing with and was able to come up with. This is an example of what I can put out versus a uh, well-researched and thought out and meticulously detailed and designed medical illustration that is telling a story and it has a lot of uh, background to it. The amount of time invested into an, a medical illustration is different than the time invested in a you know, just a style render, right? Yeah, but I think even if it's just a style render, there's still time that went into it. There's still skills that went into it. So again, just watermark it, sign it. Everything on the internet, like if you're promoting yourself, it doesn't help you whatsoever. People can't tell you where that image came from once mm. it's gone through the, the yes. either that is the internet. So very put good your point. name on it at the very least or put your website address or put something on it so people can find you. Like Very good point. Have, very if you good think point. about traditional paintings, they also have a signature, whether it's noticeable or not, because uh, it doesn't help your career or your uh, portfolio in any way if they can't tie it back to you. Very good point. Very good point. Yeah. So that's, that's part of the process that, you know, I've been trying to get better at is the, like the end stage of it where I'm making sure to always, yeah, put my signature, my copyright notice on my images. And sometimes, man, that can kind of like that time adds up and you're just like, Oh, I'm not creating anything with all this time I'm spending, but you know, it's, it's time that is important. Now, moving back to the beginning stages, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your, your previs process. You talked a bit about using Illustrator wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you plan out uh, an illustration or design uh, before you even get into Illustrator. Uh, also a great question. And <laughs> I'm exposing so much of my chaotic process. Um, I think kind of like my learning, my previous process is also quite chaotic. Um, I, because I've seen people who kind of methodically lay it out and they, they gather all their references and they do like, 10 different thumbnail sketches and they got this like beautiful linear process um but because i tend to have a lot of projects on the go um with short deadlines i my previous process is basically once i figured out what the project is and what they're looking for again it's that like 5200 taps of scientific gathering um and usually i just uh, i i have illustrator open and i just dump uh screenshots of reference images i jump in kind of text uh, references or like snippets from articles that are important. Um, and then I end up with this like 
collage it kind of looks like um like you know when you picture the person that has like this conspiracy theory and they've got like all of these pictures on the walls and they're like lining up red lines. it kind of it looks like a digital version of that um you got the the threads with the thumbtacks no, no threads but i just kind of hold it in my head like okay if i'm doing like an infographic on say covid then um i've got like 20 different renderings of the virus uh, on my screen and i know that i need the protein from this one and i need the uh, membrane from that one and I really liked the accuracy of the receptor from this one and then I've got all my text on the side so then I keep in my head okay so the um, the membrane protein is a dimer and the envelope protein is this and then I just kind of it's like a like a jumble in my head and then I just go and I just start drawing like I just I don't have time for thumbnails and I don't have time for like layout sketches and stuff i just put everything out i draw and then i move it around because filters are flexible and i figure that out as i as i go i don't know if that's helpful for people but it's kind of how i've eventually ended up working just through kind of again trial by fire of time pressures and and stuff <laughs> right on right on and now how, th this is always a struggle for me too how do you decide when something's done that one's actually quite easy for me when I've either uh, met the client's specific specifications mm -hmm. or I spent enough time on it to meet the budget or <laughs> I just don't want to look at it anymore and I, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm not the type of um, artist that needs to like continually perfect something for days on end. I generally... I'm a little bit impatient, so generally when I'm done with something, I call it a day, but then later on, I'll come and revisit it and I'll kind of evaluate what I could have done better and what I want to improve on, but usually that's after the project has ended and I'm mostly working on it for my own portfolio, um, just because contrary to what I think a lot of people think, a lot of clients don't have, you know, a lot of budget for you to make that beautiful kind of Mona Lisa, they really just, they just need, you know, a diagram and that's all the money they have for Mm. And you can't, you're going to be broke if you, you know, make a Mona Lisa for every client. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. And then how do you know when something is taking too long and you need to find a better solution? Um, for me, usually it's when I've, like, I've spent, you know, a couple of hours on the one thing and I'm still stuck and I haven't made any progress. Um so I guess, for example, if I'm trying to do a texture of a tumor and, you know, I've tried rendering it by hand, I've tried putting a texture over it, I've tried uh, taking stock images and like manipulating it and it's still not getting there um, and I run out of ideas, then I definitely know that I need to either reach out for help or take a break and come back to it um, or it's kind of gone over budget and I look at the time I spent on it and, and the budget and then realize that it's, you know, it's going under an hourly rate that I can make a living off of. Then I've got to reevaluate. Do it, is this the right project for me? Should I outsource it? Um, or should I, um, or was where there's scope creep? Should I ask for more money? Or, um, yeah, just kind of evaluate at that point. Right on, right on. And so what are some of the things you look at when you're evaluating your own work? Um, yeah, uh, great question. Um, so I think there's a list of quality assurance things that I go through, um, especially when I'm kind of looking at people's portfolios and they ask for advice. Um, that's always, is it accurate? Because at the end of the day, we're science communicators. It doesn't matter how beautiful it is if it's not accurate. 
um, is it legible? So again, you know, if it's accurate, it doesn't serve anybody any good if your font size is size six and nobody can read it, or if you've got so many colors going on that you can't tell things apart. Um, and then, uh, and then you kind of look at the artistic skills of it. Um, and if you met all those criteria and you still kind of want to improve as an artist, um, I recommend just taking a break from it and just, you know, move on to something else and come back to it in a few weeks or even like a month or so. And you'll have, you'll have a fresh pair of eyes and you'll have probably learned something or, um, and I don't know what the kind of scientific explanation for this is but sometimes if you're not actively working on something but it just like brews in the back of your head sometimes you can get more insight if you kind of just let it sit in the background for a bit um so come back up with a pair of fresh eyes and then you'll probably see you know misalignments or things that you want to improve on or um you've learned something new about color that you want to try uh, applying and then the other one is to give it to someone else because when we work on a piece for so long, we get biased and we kind of uh, we kind of think that there's more to, like we we know the history behind it, we know the the research behind it, but a new uh, person wouldn't necessarily know that. So if you give it to someone else and you ask them, uh, you know, what do you think this piece is communicating? Do you understand it? Um, what is your kind of first impression? And if it's not what you were aiming for, then you know that's when you can also kind of uh, ask for their opinion on what they think uh, would improve it. Again, take it with a grain of salt. If it's someone that's like, I think it would look great with more gradients and comic cons, <laughs> then maybe not. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so definitely those things. And then also just don't be too hard on yourself. Um, I think we're our own, you know, biggest critics. And I can't tell you the number of times where I've worked on something and I'm convinced that it's terrible and it looks, you know, it's not right. And, I, and you know, I can do better. And then you know, two years later, I come back to it. And I'm like, you know what, that actually is pretty good. And mm -hmm. it was pretty impressive for <laughs> the skills that I had back then. Um, and yeah, so again, don't be too hard on yourself as well, because you can't grow and learn if, you know, if you're constantly beating yourself down. Right on. Oh, man, that's awesome. I, I totally agree. Yeah, I think we all kind of have a tendency to be a bit hard on ourselves, right? Especially when we work in an industry where accuracy is such a big deal. You know, that that permeates into both the scientific accuracy, but also the accuracy of, you know, did I get out of my head exactly what I was seeing in my head, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like, is it accurate to my vision? You know, <laughs> <laughs> And it usually never is because, you know, your brain is able to do you can visualize anything and sometimes it's not even possible to put it on paper because <laughs> what you picture in your head just doesn't make any logical sense when you try to put it on paper because in your head you're like the light shines this way and there's this beautiful atmosphere and then you just you just can't do it <laughs> <laughs> right on I, I think that's one of the things i i think about a lot is there are definitely elements to each of us that are sort of always going to be there you know, you meet like an old friend from high school years later and you're like, oh man, you're still the same, you know, <laughs> the same character. But like, but there, you know, there, there's definitely something to be said for personal development and uh, learning new skills. L like you had mentioned earlier, the interpersonal skills. So what are some of the, like, the attributes that you've noticed in people that you've worked with that you find that, yeah, this is definitely something uh, that, that contributes to being a successful artist? Oh man, tough question. I don't know. I personally think that there's no right way to be an artist and there's no right way to be a medical illustrator. 
um, the field is varied enough and there's enough kind of even tangential kind of careers out there that utilize our skill that I think there's there's a fit for everybody. Um, like you don't have to be an extrovert to freelance and run a business and you don't have to, you know, be really charismatic to be a leader in a team in a company. Um, so I think, I don't think there's a specific attribute. I think if you, um, if you value kind of science and art and you just kind of want to learn and, and I think you can probably mold your career in medical illustration to suit your personality. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> oh, that, oh man, that makes me wipe the sweat from my brow. I feel, I'm feeling much better now. <laughs> <laughs> That's good news for me. Good news for me. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think there's a role for everybody. Like if you if you don't want to talk to people and you just want to render all day, there's a studio out there that will let you do that. And um, if you're like me and you get bored easily, you can freelance and take on a new project every like two weeks if you want to. So I think there's there's a fit for everybody. And I think it just takes time uh, to find it. And it takes you know, a bit of resilience to be okay with finding, you know, going through a few that aren't so great until you get there um and then i've had friends that think that you know have kind of uh ducked out of the industry but they use their skills uh that they've learned so you know in product design or uh, ux research it's all skills that you you would have learned as a medical illustrator that can help you out in your next kind of career as well so yeah right on awesome awesome what are some of the people that you have connected with and you found to be really important for running your business? Uh, I would say first and foremost is getting an accountant. Mm. Um, unless you're really good at taxes and finances, which I am not. I, I, I hear taxes, my eyes just glaze over. Um, <laughs> and if you're running your own business, um, whether that's a sole proprietorship or a corporation, I think having an accountant helps you out tremendously because they know ways to Kind of help you out in terms of whether that's expenses that you didn't think you could write off but you actually can or there's not loopholes but like strategies of declaring your income or um you know maybe putting off your income to the next fiscal year to kind of lower your taxes um if you own a corporation they kind of help you out with how many how much dividends you take out versus like there's there's so much that i don't understand that they're able to do to help you out that it's not really worth your time to kind of get a degree in accounting to figure it out like i i always justify the expense that the kind of 20 hours it would have taken to figure that out and tear my hair out uh i i can just take on a project for those 20 or four hours to have paid off that expense uh and and then some that's kind of how I justify it. So definitely an accountant if you're going to be running a business, or at least I consult with one. Um, and then uh, your professional network, because as a freelancer, you're not going to be able to take on every project, um, and you won't have the skills to also work on every project. So having people to rely on, whether that's to ask for help, or to contract out, or to even just pass projects off of, is definitely eval invaluable. And then at the end of the day, you know, use your social support, your family, your friends, so that because if you're freelancing by yourself, it's isolating, it can be lonely, you, you definitely want your social support there. But I think just, you know, freelancing is, is a job and with any job, you don't want to make out your whole life. So you definitely want to, you know, maintain your friendships and, and everything that makes life enjoyable. Right on. Yeah, that's a, that's a great segue to talk a little bit about work-life balance. 
how have you kind of arranged your schedule or your time or you know what are some lessons that you've learned about uh, freelancing and and achieving that work-life balance <laughs> it's still a learning process and I definitely don't have it figured out um, I, I'm notorious for being a sprinter where I, I work like crazy and then I burn out and I take a break and then I work like crazy and I burn out and you think at some point I would have learned to maybe just you know take it slow and steady instead of being the hare that needs to like nap in the middle of the race <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, through my errors I think um, work-life balance definitely um, take time to do self-care and take time to recharge um, I just I heard this from a podcast recently that if you feel guilty about taking time for yourself don't think of it as kind of like time wasted but as time invested so that you can more effectively use your time that you're not it, the the guy put it more eloquently but basically like time invested in yourself is time that you're investing in your business for your job or your professional skills so you can more efficiently and effectively utilize that chunk of time so that helped me and then also just setting up barriers to overworking whether that's planning like a movie to watch at the end of the day or scheduling like a dinner or a call with a friend and then also kind of learning to set boundaries I'm, I'm really bad at saying no to things and so then I take on everything and then I overwork myself or, or I start resenting the projects I've taken on. Um, so really kind of learning how to say no is <laughs> going to be valuable, not just for freelancing, but for everything in your life. Um, and so that would definitely help as well. Um, and I think at the end of the day, because I'm type A and I'm definitely perfectionist, just learning that sometimes what you're doing is good enough and that's and you've tried your best, and that's that's all you need to do. You don't have to strive to be the most perfect freelancer. You don't have to strive to be the most perfect friend or wife or uh, partner. Just learning to like be okay with being enough. I think, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great advice, man. That's awesome. It sounds like you no, know, you know, the work that you've done and and your experiences have definitely help to, to shape your worldview. What are uh, some examples of how the work uh, you've done as a medical illustrator yeah, changed your outlook on the future? I think for me, I realized that there's so much scientific inaccuracy out there. Um, mm. And it's so pervasive. I mean, I, I don't want to get political with the whole COVID pandemic and what's happening in the States and, and stuff. But even just in like film and television, like I remember... Uh, when Dexter first came out and everybody was raving about it and I wanted to watch it and I think in one of the first episodes they had this severed foot and uh, and they were like oh the foot was severed at the tarsals and I was like it's clearly severed at the fibula and tibula it's the shin like what is happening and I could not watch the show for the life of me because of that one episode um, <laughs> that would yeah that would drive me nuts too actually yeah. <laughs> um and and even in my own like kind of uh, life where I have friends who aren't in science and they're like oh my stomach hurts and and it got better after I went to the washroom and like it wasn't your stomach it was your intestines and um, and I think for me I've just really learned to value the importance of science literacy and how and how much like that is really needed in the world especially with everything going on um, so I really hope that as a medical illustrator and as the field expands because visuals are universal and it trans you know it goes through all languages that we're able to help communicate and spread science through the world so that there is less you know mis misinformation out there 
Absolutely. But you, now, if you want to get accurate, though, have you watched Forensic Files? I have not. Oh, man. Forensic Files. It's a bit dated. You know, it's from like, you know, the late 80s or early 90s. Actually, I think it's from the 90s. But it look, some of the early episodes are like, whoa, man, when was this shot? But man, the content, I, they have some awesome animations that I, visually they're not, you know, not quite as impressive as what you see put out these days. But what the, their ability to explain a concept from a case uh, or show, you know, the trajectory of, you know, a, a weapon or blood splatters or that kind of thing. It's it's pretty cool to see. And one of the things that I've really gotten out of that show is just appreciating, you know, the kind of realities of violent crime and of the people who have to work on those cases and the amount of time that they invest in, you know, pursuing uh, these, some of these cases. Have you ever done any uh, med legal stuff? Uh, no, that's the one part of the field I have uh, no experience in outside of that one piece we did in grad school. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah. I think in Canada, we're not as litigious as the States too. So that's I don't true. think there's much work out there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I've I've always I've also wondered if going back to forensic files, if there's untapped opportunities to do visualization work for forensics. I'm sure there is. I think there's a lot of untapped potential for science visualization everywhere. Even um, in you know primary education, I think there's you know ways to communicate science that we're not utilizing, and um, in in news articles too, um, and news segments. I think. I think it'd just be really awesome if there was just more science out there. Oh, definitely on the news. I that's where it's really needed, right? Yeah, the like I think if they just had one really, really good animation that explains why masks are effective and what types of masks aren't effective, and, and I think that would just help so much instead of just saying wear your mask. Like if you explain the size of the mesh and the the virus particles and stuff, I think it would just help so much. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope that we will see more uh, visualization stuff. Um, I have to say I am impressed with what people have been putting out for the COVID. A lot of medical illustrators have been really generous with putting out images for free that researchers can use. And I think that that has been noticed. I think a lot mm-hmm. of folks have responded really positively to that. For, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think as a community, we've definitely helped a lot. It would be even better if you know we got paid for those few pieces <laughs> <laughs> yeah i well I, I i think maybe the hope is that they're like sort of promotional you know they'll kind of bring attention to those artists um i know avesta she mentioned at the uncon that you know she had put out like a covid pathology illustration and she ended up getting quite a bit of freelance from that because people saw it and reached out to her so i think that worked in her favor but i think she also did due diligence on following up you know she didn't just put that image out there and just kind of sit and wait for people to contact her i think she she put it out there but then she you know would email researchers or other people who you know clicked like or shared it and she said oh thanks for so much for sharing what are you working on maybe i can do something for you right so i think that following up is a key ingredient right yes definitely self-promotion and self-marketing yeah definitely will help you with your freelance business mm-hmm so looking forward, uh, what else uh, do you think maybe we're we're going to see and what what else would you like to see in the industry and different applications of medical illustration? Ooh, 
another hard question. Um, this is kind of uh, a little bit silly, but I think it would be fun if there were more creative outlets for people to get connected with science and medical illustration. I think it would be really cool if there was like a coloring book that kind of got you through all the different organ systems in the body or one on like different types of microbes or something or um, just really fun, cool like posters or um, fun videos. I think there's a lot of, we're really good at making a really serious work, uh, especially with like for researchers and things, but I think having more uh, general publicly accessible, accessible um, work would I think be really fun to do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Lower the barrier of entry for science, right? Because it can be really kind of yeah. intimidating. Especially with the amount of acronyms, like sometimes I'll do a piece and there's literally not a single word. It's just acronyms of proteins and arrows. And I think oh. to the general public, they would look at that and just not be able to digest any of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the language, the jargon, right? Is it's sometimes it's just overwhelming, and you when when you know the material well, you can look through it and you can kind of say, guys, we don't need to be this, you know, verbose. <laughs> we can cut this down. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yep, definitely. So what's uh, what's new for you these days? What what have you been working on lately? For me, I'm actually trying to get back into doing art for fun. Oh, nice. Um, I think I think it's a double-edged sword when they say pursue your hobby as a career because then it stops being a hobby um, and drawing and art becomes work. And so there's, for me, you know, when I sit down in front of a piece of paper and I try to draw something, the first thing that goes into my head is what organ do I draw? And then if I draw it, can I use it to promote my business? And can I get clients from it? And, you know, then it takes all of the fun and spontaneity out of it. And also, in total honesty, like, I'm not so passionate about organs that I want to draw it in my free time. So I've actually just been trying to get back into drawing as a hobby and drawing non-medical, non-science related things and trying to work on other types of creative outlets like sculpting. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. Like traditional. Yeah, traditional sculpting, traditional artwork. Um, awesome. Just trying to get back into like the artist side of me and less so of the science business side of me. Um, I think that's going to help my creativity and kind of help me um, really get back into the passion of, of the art side of things. Right on. Right on. That's awesome. What medium of choice would you say is, you mentioned sculpture, but is there anything that you've stumbled on lately that like you never realized, you didn't know about before? And like you're super excited about? <laughs> like, like how I tackle my projects, I tend to sprint and burn through <laughs> different mediums and hobbies. Mm -hmm. um, so I've tried them all. I think I did needle uh, felting, paper oh, no cutting, way. Um, embroidery, quilting, uh, making my own stuffed animals, uh, sculpting, ceramics. Um, painting, watercolor. I think I've like, tried everything, and and so right now I'm just really into uh, Sculpey at the moment because it's oh, okay. so fast. Make mm. something, bake it in the oven, and you can paint it. Um, so that's what I'm really into right now. But you know, in a couple of weeks, I'll probably be on something new. Or stop motion animation, right? That's the next next oh. step, right? Yep. <laughs> oh no, I don't know if I have the patience for that. <laughs> <laughs> Have, have there been any uh, films or TV shows that you've seen recently that really inspired you, like in an artistic way? Netflix recently put all the Studio Ghibli. Is it Ghibli or Ghibli? I never know. Yeah, I, I, that's another one I totally don't know the right way to pronounce. <laughs> all, all the diehard um, 
you know, animation fans are going to come after us now, but um, I know. Uh, they put out all of the, the movies on Netflix. And I think that's just been really inspiring to see the amount of artistic uh, work that goes into the backgrounds and the animation. So that's definitely really something that I've been watching. Right on. Yeah. We, we just watched um, the Queen's Gambit. Have you seen that oh, one yet? Man. I saw it three times. Yeah. Oh my God. The cinematography in that series was just phenomenal. Everything was so good. The sound, the like, you know, cinematography, the fashion, the yeah, yeah, acting. Oh, casting, lighting. The lighting was like oh stellar. I mean, yeah, everything in there was just yeah phenomenal, beautiful. And I, I know nothing about chess. I have no idea what the heck they're talking about. And I saw it a few times. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I think maybe we we'll uh, wrap up here before we go though. Uh, maybe some some final thoughts. Uh, do you have any favorite like fun facts about art or science or anything? Uh, fun fact I think I like is Leonardo da Vinci. People think of him as this uh, beautiful painter and kind of like master inventor. Um, I think what people don't know about him is he's kind of like one of the first kind of also medical illustrators. And um, back then, you know, we didn't have all the edu- education we had now. So he had to rob graves to get cadavers oh, and dissect man. them and draw the body parts and learn about anatomy that way. Um, <laughs> and it really just kind of paved the way for our, for our field. And I think, I think it goes to show like if you're really passionate about something, you'll, you'll find ways to make it work. Um, but hopefully, you know, you do it in legal ways that don't involve desecrating remains. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, yeah, is there is there anything uh, you'd like to promote or give a shout out? I think I just really want to give a shout out to my mentor, uh, Diana Krisky. Uh, as I've mentioned before, Krisky Biomedia is her company and she does phenomenal work. I highly recommend her. And if you're looking for collaborators, uh, she's open to projects and she's incredibly skilled and uh, fast. So I would definitely recommend checking her out. Awesome. Awesome. All right. And then last question. What advice if any, would you give to your younger self? Other than the advice that I've given already, get a cat much earlier because your life will be so much better once you have a cat in it. (laughs) Yeah, for anybody that wants to follow my cat, his name is Waffles. He has an Instagram account that is, you know, not popular whatsoever because I haven't figured out social media, but it's Waffles underscore the underscore ragdoll. And he's he's my best friend. He's a ragdoll? He's a ragdoll. I love ragdolls. I used to have two. Oh my god, no way. Okay, we need yeah. a whole separate episode just to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> you can't, don't get me started because we'll never finish, but he's my best friend and he follows me everywhere. And <clears throat> he's the, you know, light of my life right now and he keeps me sane during quarantine. And I think just the animals have a way of showing you unconditional love and and being able to, you know, just fully relax. And I just, I would recommend to my younger self, get a cat earlier and get more cats. <laughs> but don't be a cat hoarder. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And this has been just phenomenal. This is such valuable information for a lot of people to hear. I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and experiences openly. And uh, I wish you all the best. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I had such a great time, and uh, I hope some of the answers were helpful, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what um, other people have to say when you uh, do episodes with other people.